coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. But there's this idea that when we come into the world, we're a 360 degree individual that can show lots of different characteristics and traits and emotions. And as we get a little bit older, you know, three, four, five, six, we start to filter and edit this 360 degree character. So maybe we notice that when we're angry, people withdraw their love or when we're sad, people don't want to be around us. And so we start to develop this kind of implicit idea as to how we need to be to be loved in the world. Welcome back to the show. It's episode 152 and we have a great guest lined up for you this Christmas week. It's Pat Dibley. But first, big thanks to the overarching sponsor of the show, Hawora. It's a performance well-being growth partner that looks to impact on individual and organizational health and well-being through four key pillars, physical, mental, social and occupational. So do make sure to check it out at haworalife.com. H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Pat Divoli, emotional resilience and well-being coach and author of Fit Mind, eight weeks to change your inner soundtrack and tune into your greatness, coming out January 7th, 2022. Pat is a high performance coach helping people reach new levels of purpose, passion and fulfillment. He's the host of the very popular The Pat Divoli podcast and a speaker known to truly engage his audience. Based out of Galway, Ireland, Pat offers free journaling and meditation courses on his website, men's group work, retreats, and corporate wellness consultancy. Today we start with imposter syndrome as a concept, recently mentioned by Pat as he is finishing his audiobook for his new book, Fit Mind. We discuss how Pat identifies himself and how that has changed over the years. We learn about what shadow values are, fear, and how we can manage it, cognitive behavioral therapy, dig into nervous system regulation and inner work, and why that's crucial. Self-talk is a primary theme of this episode, and we ask Pat why this is massively important. Setting aside time for yourself and your thoughts, building better awareness and compassion. Pat Dively, welcome to the show this morning. Thanks very much for giving us your time. I suppose where we'd like to nearly kick off is, we had a little voice note over Instagram yesterday, and you were saying, suffering a bit with imposter syndrome having just done the audiobook of your new book how are you how are you getting on with that i haven't slept no um <laughs> yeah there was i was recording the audiobook the last 3 days and i suppose i hadn't looked at the book in 6 months i'd spent 12 months working on it and then i kind of stepped away from it once it was done and just going back to it i suppose yeah it's just questioning a couple of weeks before it hits the world are people going to enjoy it so hopefully I feel like I've birthed a baby and I hope the world likes my baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they will. We had a uh, Dr. BJ Fogg on, I think it was early last year. And he said, uh, Audible didn't want him to do the, the audio book himself. He had to actually convince them. He had to do an audition. Did you have to do an audition or were they, were they happy enough given the podcast and the, the natural voice, the Irish voice, <laughs> the, the Irish, the Irish world. Um, <laughs> I, I had to give a, a short demo, but I think they were happy enough. Um, yeah, I had to send over a short 
it's funny, it's one of the things I was visualizing as I was writing the book, written and read by the author. <laughs> I was driving, drive, driving around in my car, practicing. If you ever get to the end of the audible books, there's always a weird, it goes from like top quality audio to like this sort of staticky, thank you, this was an audio production. <laughs> I'll tell you what surprised me is they released them on CD as well. So the last, the last piece I was recording yesterday was, this is the end of CD one. Go to CD two. Wow. <laughs> 12, wow. CD, 12 CDs. Wow. So we're grateful to get early hands. Thanks to Gilbooks for sending some over. So we had a great. We're after and thanks for Golden Discs for sending all of that CD <laughs> box out. <laughs> so we're after diving into it and it's an amazing book. And we just, we started off and we, we saw this, the first little bit. And I had to ask, I said, that has to be my first question. It says to Ryan Johnson, thank you for the encouragement and love you and your family showed me in my late teens. It changed the course of my life forever. Do you want to mm. tell us about why that was so transformative for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I often talk about struggling with confidence as a young man and struggling to find my place. I was never good at team sports. I didn't enjoy team sports. And when I was a teenager, I found martial arts. So I started doing judo and boxing. Um, some of the other dedications in the book are guys like Chick Gillen, who was a boxing coach in Galway, and John Craven, who was a judo coach. But when it came to the end of my first year in college, a lot of people were going on their J1 to go to America for a couple of months. San Diego was the place at the time. And I wanted to do it a little bit different. So I was keen to pursue mixed martial arts at the time. So that was 2009, I think. So mixed martial arts hadn't really kicked off. Um, I suppose it was still cage fighting in people's eyes back then. And I contacted a couple of gyms in San Diego saying, I'd love to come and train. I've done a bit of judo, done a bit of boxing. And most of the gyms didn't come back to me. And this one guy, Ryan Johnson, came back and he said, my grandfather was Irish. My great grandfather was Irish. Um, I'll give you a place to stay. You can work in the gym. You can train full time. And for two summers, his family just, just, you know, gave me so much support and love that, you know, they didn't, they didn't know me from Adam, but they've become like family over the last whatever number of years. So it's as I get older, I recognize how important male mentorship is for males. You know, um, I think it's one of the things that is missing in the world is uh, having an older man kind of tell you you're doing well and guiding you a little bit. So the men that I dedicated the book to are Ryan Johnson and Chick Gillen, John Craven, another guy, Eric Coleman, who was my first mentor in fitness. And I just recognize, I suppose, again, as I get older, the influence these guys had at different times in my life when I probably needed that that validation or that kind of nod of approval. The message from your book and from a lot of your work, Pat, is, is really profound, kind of reducing the inner critic and I suppose giving people substance as to how they speak to themselves, you know, showing a bit of self-compassion, understanding self-care. It's, it's kind of words that we would uh, work on ourselves. And there's so much of that threaded through your book, especially with your, your methods and your tools with respect to those eight chapters. How did that come to be the primary frame that you wanted to bring to this book? Because it is so important and, and often massively neglected, especially by males. Uh, well, my, my background obviously was fitness for a number of years. And I think when I came into the fitness industry as a 19 or 20 year old, I was somewhat naive. I had done the cage fighting stuff in America and fitness to me was something I had always enjoyed. And so I thought everyone's going to enjoy fitness. This is going to be easy. And the more people I worked with, the more the more I came to understand what true health was. So it wasn't just about training, wasn't just about nutrition, things like sleep and stress and self-talk and nervous system regulation, all these different aspects started becoming interesting to me. And 
that was the big one was self-talk. You know, I recognized I have hundreds of clients here in Galway. Some people are getting great results. Others keep falling off the wagon. They've got the same support. They've got the same amount of time in the gym. Everything's the same. But what's different is obviously what they're telling themselves outside of their time with me in the gym. And equally in my own life, you know, those times in my life where I was achieving everything I thought I wanted, but still the voice in my head was very critical and difficult. And so I just became curious about CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. I looked at all sorts of therapies and modalities and ways of recognizing how we speak to ourselves. And when it came to writing a book, it was kind of the obvious choice for me. Um, I know there's a lot of books that mention self-talk or touch on self-talk, but I didn't see too many that explicitly went after it and tried to kind of have a system for, you know, checking your inner critic, recognizing the different characters in your head and then working with them as opposed to trying to get rid of them. So yeah, it was kind of, it's, it's, it's hopefully been a culmination of a lot of what I've learned from people a lot smarter than me over the last 10 years and also my life experience and stories. We've actually, Kieran and I just had a conversation this week about childhood experiences and kind of how much of it is buried and, and then do you go back to it and can you remember what you were like when you, you know, from the age of five to 10 or 15 to 20 and what, what were those critical moments like for you as, as a human being and how do they potentially manifest later in life as to what you look like as, as a character and as, as to how you show up. Mm. But that perspective and the, as you said, rewriting the script is so profound. We'd love if you unpacked the importance of that because a lot of people are probably scared to look at maybe sometimes in the past that weren't always perfect. Yeah, I don't explicitly use the, the language of shadow too much in the book, but there's this idea that when we come into the world, we're a 360 degree individual that can show lots of different characteristics and traits and emotions. And as we get a little bit older, you know, three, four, five, six, we start to filter and edit this 360 degree character. So maybe we notice that when we're angry, people withdraw their love or when we're sad, people don't want to be around us. And so we start to develop this kind of implicit idea as to how we need to be to be loved in the world. You know, as a child, you're not um, you don't have much perspective. Things are kind of black and white. So you feel loved or you're not loved. Things are good or bad. They're right or they're wrong. And so we slowly start to edit who we are so that we fit in at home. And then we go to school and we edit who we are so we fit in at school. And our personality starts to become, well, we develop this persona, how we want to be seen in the world. And when you develop a persona, uh, you develop the opposite. So if there's something you're proud of, uh, by default, there's going to be something you're ashamed of. So if I'm proud of my work ethic, there's potential that I'm ashamed of the fact that sometimes I'm lazy. And all these shame-based shame characteristics will go into my shadow. And I try to hide that from the world, even hide that from myself. As you say, it can be pushed down so deep that I don't even know it's there. And that will come out in unconscious ways. So when it comes to this type of work that I'm talking about as we get older and want to explore our patterns, the really important part is the compassion piece in terms of this stuff went into shadow and got hidden away because we were ashamed of it. So as we start to touch it again and look at it again, there is a you know, risk of shame coming up and uh, things becoming overwhelming. So it's really about being gentle, being curious and coming at it slowly. There's an analogy sometimes used for this type of work where we'll say it's like shaking up a bottle of Coke and opening the top. You want to open it really slowly, open it a little bit and close it back down, open it a little bit more and close it back down. And that's kind of how I approach it. So gentle journaling techniques, a little bit of meditation. A sense of curiosity over judgment really is the key. 
yeah, a lot of feedback I get is that when people hear about shadow work, it sounds scary. But when people come and do a bit of work with me on that stuff, they say, oh, it's not as <laughs> it's not as intimidating or overwhelming as I expected, because there's a lot of gold in the shadow as well, you know, particularly for, you know, in Irish culture, a lot of us got the implicit message to keep your head down and not get above your station. And so a lot of that gets hidden away, a lot of our beauty and our magic and our creativity. And, you know, we can reclaim all these aspects of ourselves. Something I'm always interested in, we spoke about at the start, was imposter syndrome and stepping outside the comfort zone. So you've just mentioned there in, in Irish society, especially, it's kind of don't step out of line, keep keeping your lane. When you're facing something like recording the audiobook and you really don't want to do it, do you have a process or an exercise you use to just initially take that first step towards it and actually get it done rather than putting it off through the hardship or the assumed angst that it would cause you? Yeah, um, uh, there's lots of different approaches. I mean, when it's fear that I'm coming up against, there's an exercise in the book called the fear wall that I talk about. And really the concept or idea behind that is if we think of our fear as a big wall that's in front of us and the bigger the fear, the bigger the wall. For a lot of us, we're just staring at the wall and it's terrifying. You think I'm going to fall off that thing. That's so big. That's, you know, that wall is huge. Or we look at our fear and we just see, you know, what happens when we're afraid of something is our attention on or sorry, our awareness of everything that's happening shifts to attention. It's like we put the blinkers on and we only see worst case scenario. So I'll do a little exercise of kind of thinking about what's on the other side of this wall. There's no point in me climbing a wall if there's nothing worthwhile on the far side. And so I look for the potential positives that are going to come on the far side. And I try to increase my attention. So again, going from just looking at the fear to thinking about what are the five, six, 10 things I stand to gain um, if I'm willing to step into this. Um, so that's one piece. And then the other big piece for me, I've gotten big into Richard Swartz's work over the last two years, it's, um, or last year even. Um, he's the man behind internal family systems. Himself and Gabor Mate have influenced me. And a lot of their work is this idea that when we were young, we experienced things that were overwhelming or scary. And in those moments, it's almost like those parts of us got frozen in time. So if you imagine a child that gets bullied at five or six years old and the child almost freezes in time and develops some psychological defense mechanisms to stop that from happening again. So maybe they become the tough guy or maybe they become the funny girl or maybe they become the loner. But the mind comes up with primitive and, you know, young ways of keeping themselves safe going forward. And as we get older, these parts of us are still there. So if I get intimidated and I experience imposter syndrome, Generally, it's not 34-year-old Pat that's experiencing that. It's a younger part of myself that was overwhelmed at one point. So I try to go back in time and I recognize, okay, that's the part of me that's afraid of judgment from other people. Really, the 34-year-old me is not afraid of too much judgment. However, the younger parts of me that are still there are definitely afraid. So I check in with myself. I say, okay, I'm feeling overwhelmed right now. I feel this sense of imposter syndrome. I feel like people are going to laugh at me. I feel like I'm going to be ridiculed. I feel like I'm going to be exiled from the tribe. I close my eyes, I check in, okay, okay, what part of me is that? And I just try to soothe that part. And that could be just some deep breaths. It could be having a conversation with myself. It could be just reassuring myself that even if everything I do flops, I've still got myself, I've still got the people around me. So a couple of those things have been useful for me. You've got some amazing concepts towards the end of, of Fit Mind. Two really stood out. Oftentimes, we're trying to impress other people, right? We're trying to, you know, show up to other people, like you said, maybe the persona and you're playing a certain character. But you say it's really important to have a meeting with the most important person in the world. 
and and then you also talk about date night and so when reading that we kind of went oh that's about the partner that's about your wife that's about your husband but it, it it isn't those two concepts are really really important i think really profound and we actually hadn't really read it or heard about them before just share as to what the two of them mean yeah i suppose the first piece you know i've said for years that any relationship that we want to improve in life requires three things it requires taking time for the person being present with the person and getting to know them on a deeper level so if i have a friend and i never take time for them they're not going to feel appreciated uh, if i do take time for them but i'm always on my phone i'm disconnected i'm not present they're not going to appreciate that and finally if i do take time for them and i'm present but i'm asking the same questions every day we're not going to go any deeper so i i kind of flip the script and i bring it back to ourselves and i ask do i take time for myself Am I present with myself where I'm not connected to anything? That's why the journaling comes in. And then again, the journaling comes in with, am I asking myself new questions every day and deepening my understanding of myself? There's this idea that 95% of our thoughts will tend to be very similar to yesterday. So we're just living out these cycles and we're showing up again as the younger versions of ourselves, as opposed to showing up to each interaction as a new person in the present moment. So the deepening the relationship really is, is, is again... And just this recognition that we have to invest in things that are important to us in our lives. And there's, it's such a fast paced world and there's such, uh, it can be overwhelming and that there's so much vying for our attention. So I think it's got to be a conscious choice to come back to ourselves and make that time. And that's where the date night idea comes in. I suppose naively, I wrote my last book probably seven years ago. It was called Upgrade Your Life and it was very goal setting-esque. Um, and that's why I wrote this one was because people would ask me at seminars, have you got a book? And I was almost embarrassed to send them back to that one from a couple of years ago because I'm in a very different place. But I remember when I released that book, some people were leaving reviews and they were saying, he's a bit naive and thinking people are going to be able to do all this stuff. It's too much. It's, you know, if, we've, if you've got a family and you've got, you've got a lot of commitments, it's going to be too much. And in retrospect, I probably was naive. I was 24, 25, um, a little bit older, but... I didn't have family or any of that kind of stuff. And and so this idea of the date night is, can I give myself one hour in the week? There's 168 hours in the week. Can I take one hour for myself? And I mentioned a story in the book where there was a lady that came to one of my retreats and her husband contacted me after. And he said, my wife has completely changed since that retreat. She's an amazing, like an even better mother, even better partner. She's happier in herself. And the one change she had made was that at the retreat, we had done salsa classes. And that was something she had done in her younger years that she had given up. And since the retreat, she had gone to salsa classes once a week for an hour. And it was that idea that when you fill your own cup, people talk about this all the time, fill your own cup first. The date night is the idea of, can I fill my own cup? Can I do something just for myself um, that helps me connect to myself and helps me to just, yeah, f fill up so that I can give my best to the people around me. That's brilliant. Great story as well. Looking at the book, you kind of want people to accompany it using the biggest tool that's made an impact on your life, journaling. If they kind of wanted to go through chapters and journal also. And online, if people can check it out at pattivity.com, you can look at a 14-day free journaling course as well. So why has that tool been so significant in your life? The, the journaling, um, I've always been into personal development back to 13, 14, 15, and I first picked up the book. So there's always been this fascination with what is success and how do you get to where you want to go and what do successful people do? And kind of a relentless pursuit of all that stuff from, again, 13, 14, right up to 26, 27. And um, again, I mentioned in the book that I went to a retreat a couple of years ago and it was quite expensive. It was, I think, seven or nine days long. And 
turn off your phone for seven to nine days, pay this big amount of money. I was convinced this thing's going to change my life. I'm going to learn so much. It's going to be incredible. And the crux of it was most of the retreat was centered around being given a couple of prompts by the facilitator, uh, going and writing about those prompts in our journal, and then coming back and talking about what came up. And initially I was frustrated. I felt like I've wasted my money. I'm not learning anything new. But what I came to see was I was just bringing out all this wisdom and all this kind of innate understanding that I had already. Like I was running around the place trying to get books and courses and podcasts that would give me the answers. No one else was ever going to have the answers to my stuff. Um, I could definitely get ideas from other people and inspiration from other people. But journaling taught me that, you know, for a lot of us, we're taking on so much noise that it's almost like there's an inner voice that we're pushing down further and further and further by accumulating lots of information and noise. And what journaling does for me, at least, is it allows me to give some space to that part of myself that has a lot of wisdom. You know, there's lots of different parts of us all. I've got a part who's an inner child, I've got a part who's an inner critic, but I also have a part who's like an inner elder that has great advice. They give great advice to the people around me. You know, they've got the best advice in the world when my friend is sad. And it's kind of journaling allows me to give space to that part of myself that has the answers. Um, or at least has, you know, some clarity. And so, yeah, I just started journaling a number of years ago and I, I simply write, you know, different, different techniques. Sometimes I just free write whatever's on my mind. Other times I ask myself questions. Other times I write down my biggest challenges. Other times I just provide some simple prompts of what am I grateful for. But yeah, it's a lot of things. Again, it's almost dating yourself. You know, this idea, when's the last time we picked up a pen for some of us? You know, I spend so much time on technology, even the act of lighting a candle, putting on some relaxing music and taking a pen and paper kind of brings me back to my younger years. Going to get out a bottle of red now in a minute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Pat, look, identity is something that personally I can relate to. I think Kiran can. And it definitely came through when we were reading your bio on your website. And even now you've said the book you wrote before, goal setting, different point of your life to where you are now with fit mind, you know, seven years later. What's that like? How do you identify who you are and why or how has that changed over the last seven to 10 years? Yeah, it's it, it's challenging. I had a conversation with a friend about this yesterday in terms of doing media for the book. Obviously, the media will ask, you know, what's your title? And I've never liked life coach or motivational speaker. Those things feel a little bit squirmy to me. But yeah, I came from the fitness space. I saw myself as someone who's supporting people with their physical fitness and then transitioned more into the the mental and emotional wellness space. And I I guess I keep it simple. I call myself a coach and a facilitator, but um, identity is tricky. I think it's a dance between I don't want to get stuck in one way of being and stop myself from growing and developing. But equally, there's times where it's nice to have you know, titles you can give yourself just to anchor yourself. I know if I'm changing too much all the time, (laughs) that can be challenging too. But, you know, I go back to the time when my my fitness business was at its its pinnacle, I would say, doing its best. I had done the Late Late Show and um, the gym was popular in Galway and the online courses were popular and I just was not happy. And I flat out walked away from all that stuff and gave the gym to a friend of mine and um, just went a different direction. So, I am led by my heart, um, even when that's um, scary or overwhelming. And maybe from the outside looking in, it would look like I moved from fitness into the wellness space or the mental wellness space. In my reality, it was a couple of years of uncertainty and doing talks and seminars and not sure who I was anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm okay with being in that space too. 
really when I, when I boil it down, the two things that I love to do are instill a sense of belief for people, help them believe they could do things maybe that they didn't think prior to that and create a safe space where people feel they belong. Um, I did that in fitness. I do that in wellness. That's that's what I want to do in everything that I do. And I think whatever I do for the rest of my life, and it'll probably change every couple of years, there'll always be that sense of trying to empower people and trying to create a sense of belonging. And the reason for those two things is that I think you can teach what you need the most. So what I need the most is a sense of belonging and a sense of belief because those two things have always been difficult for me. You mentioned the word empowerment and it's just coming into the new year now. We have a lot of NEFIT meetings, so we have a lot of coronavirus issues, restrictions happening. There's a lot of pressure on people, a lot of uncertainty. If you had to give 140 characters, one tweet or one message out to everybody and Jack Dorsey's going to come and say, we're going to read it out to everybody and close down Twitter and Pat, you're up. Last one, last week. Is there any one <laughs> message you'd like to give to people going into 2022 to really empower them? Uh, look after your nervous system. <laughs> I need context to probably explain what I mean, but uh, I'd say look after the nervous system. That's kind of been my, I've really become fascinated in recent times. I, I'm kind of always jumping on different things, but recent times it's, um, you know, there's the top-down approach, this idea of Western psychology, that the mind impacts how we feel. But the opposite is also true in terms of a bottom-up approach, meaning what's going on in my body impacts how I see the world. And what I mean by that is if my body perceives that I'm under stress all the time, then my whole world looks stressful. Everything looks overwhelming and scary. And for the last two years, the media has fed a lot of fear-based narratives, obviously. It's been, there's been a huge amount of uncertainty. People's freedoms have been taken away. And the things that people love to do have been taken away. There's been a lot of challenge for people. There's obviously been a lot of sickness and death. There's been a huge amount that's been very stressful for people. And so if we're in a stress state physiologically, that impacts how we see the world and how we see the people in our lives. We see this big division in terms of you know, polarity. If someone is not wearing a mask, it really, it it, it really triggers something in people. That, that there's a lot going on. So I think the solution, or part of the solution to all of that, is again looking after the nervous system, and we see that happening through people doing their sea swimming. You know, meditation is a huge one. Breath work is a big one. Uh, any of these practices that can help us to cultivate a state of calm on a consistent basis. Because I will say, you know, again, in the book, I talk about the two triggers. There's the internal trigger and the external trigger. The external is what's happening out there. So what's happening out there will happen out there. We don't have a lot of control on that. What we do have control on is the internal trigger. So the meaning or the perception we give to what's happening out there. So, you know, if Neffet have a meeting and they make an announcement that we don't like, our perception will be somewhat dependent on what's going on in the nervous system. Am I in a state of calm with perspective or am I in a state of panic and stress and frustration and anger and how I react to what they say will be based on that nervous system. So I don't know if that was 140 characters, but that would be my, <laughs> my message. No, that's brilliant. And, and Pat, there is no finish line, right? When you're trying to build out your day and kind of give yourself the, the battery of exercise to look after yourself and, and make sure you are healthy and well. Obviously, we're getting a very good idea as to probably what are the key pillars that keep you thriving and, and keep you in a safe space. But what does that day look like? I mean, what are the, the habits? Obviously, you touch on less towards the end of your book as well as a principle for enacting behavior. But what would be the key ingredients for your day to keep you going? Do you, do you dip into a salt hill and get into that, that cold water every morning? Or what does, what does the day look like? I do burn it, but Salt Hill is too busy for me. It's a nice spot as well. I do. I've done the sea swimming on and off for years, so I definitely enjoy that. That's a nice reset. And there's a social aspect to that for me as well. Um, 
when I talk about that nervous system regulation and this idea of creating safety from within, a big part of that is actually connection to other people. I live alone, I work alone, and so I have to actively choose to go out and meet people, which is important. I definitely recognize times in my life where where I'm not as social and, and the impact that that has on how I see the world. You know, the world becomes a scary place when you don't have people to, to lean on. Um, so that's another maybe point for people to consider and a good a good actually analogy or example on that is if if, a, if we hear if we're in a group and a loud bang goes off we hear a loud bang in the background the first thing we'll do is look at each other to try and make you know that's how we check in am i safe the first thing is the social engagement and then the next thing is fight or flight and then the next thing is freeze but anyway uh, I, do, I do my sea swimming i'm big on breath work at the moment that's kind of taking the place of meditation so you know typical meditation is about present moment awareness and 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 relaxed concentration but the breathwork has become a big thing. I, I spent time with Wim Hof years ago, and um, I've I've learned from a lot of other teachers over the last couple of years. So that that's been a huge tool for me. I've been slacking with my jujitsu a little bit, but you know, just try to do one or two things daily that are in nature and that involve the breath and just relaxing the body. You know, I, I I prompt people in the book to consider that when we're stressed, it's like having our foot on the accelerator. When we're relaxed, it's kind of putting the foot on the brake. So I just asked myself that question today. What do I do today to put my foot on the brake and slow things down? The world by itself will speed things up for me. I don't need to worry about speeding things up typically. And um, there's enough going on out there that will speed things up for me. So I need to slow things down. So I'll get in the sea later on today and do a breathwork session. That's a really important message, Pat. Going to rob a question from Greg McKeown. Not Patrick McKeown, all based over in your part of the world, big into yeah. breathwork, but Greg McKeown, yeah, and you know, it's been in his podcast, it's in his book. But Pat, for you, what's essential that you're not investing enough time in, and how could you make that effortless? Hmm. Great question. Well done, Greg. Well done, well done <laughs> Greg. Greg. We've robbed that. We want you on our show, but uh, we were like, uh, we have to ask Pat Dively this. Probably... Um, kind of planning i suppose planning planning what my business looks like in the future uh, planning what my corporate programs look like i'm probably a little bit reactive with business I, I wait for jobs to come in and i do them i don't actively go out and have a plan so that's definitely something that would serve me well in terms of being more organized and then i'll structure greg how would you make that easy <laughs> how would i make that easier effortless um probably hire greg to teach me <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly no. what you were saying yeah um, probably going back to my fear wall example for earlier so not so much fear but you know when we procrastinate or we don't want to do something again our attention goes to one side of the coin the negative side so i'm thinking about you know how i don't like to be too structured and i don't like to plan too far ahead and all this so rather than thinking about those aspects that i don't like maybe it's looking on the flip side of the coin and asking you know what would it allow me it would allow me more time to travel it would allow me more financial freedom it would allow me more clarity as to who i am in the marketplace so i think that it would be to journal on the positives that would be a good starting point for me as to you know what do i stand to gain by investing more time in uh, developing my brand and who i am in the marketplace Sounds, Sounds like a plan, yeah. Keep, keep, keep me accountable, lads. Yeah. <laughs> we really interested in what people, what people get into when they're deep diving into books. When they go into Eason's, what are they picking up? What are you reading at the moment and what's really had an impact on you lately? Truth to be told, I think part of the posture syndrome that I mentioned in recording the audiobook was I haven't been reading a lot recently. I've been consuming a lot of online courses, and but in terms of how I've been consuming information, it hasn't been as many books. And I think that was part of it, you know, just getting back to 
to thinking about what is it like consuming your information through a book because the last couple of months have been mainly online courses. But the books that have been most influential for me this year, I've been involved in a lot of men's work, so kind of men's circles and um, initiations. Um, so I, uh, there's a book by um, Robert Bly called Iron John, um, which is a really good book that I read. And there's another book called Manhood by Stephen Biddulph um, that was quite influential. I always come back to Awareness by Anthony DeMello. That's my favorite book ever. A couple of those, but as I say, it's been a lot of online courses. Um, I read a book about trauma release from um, David Berselli. I've been studying some of his work, which yeah, I don't have a great answer on that, to be honest. Again, if you met well, me in my couple of years ago. I'd... writing down anyway, Pat. I think okay. Mr. Bezos will be happy I got what now. I wanted. <laughs> and fit, fit Mind, of course. Fit Mind, and of fit course. Mind. So uh, yeah, Fit Mind. Check it out, check it out. Um, Pat, look, last question for me, and then it's thrown back to Kieran. Lots of great stuff has happened, right? And you've you've obviously impacted a lot of people, given a lot of service to a lot of people. What are you What are you really most proud of, and what do you want to keep going? What do you want to keep doing moving forward? Hmm. I think the honest expression of who I am. I wore a lot of masks in my twenties, and I felt the need to. I felt the need to show up in a certain way for people to like me. And I, I, I think I, you know, I, I, maybe it's just part of getting older and also a conscious choice to kind of show up more as myself. So I'm proud of, I'm proud of my uniqueness. I think I, I do things differently. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I've kind of got my own spin on, on how I approach the work that I put out there. So I'm proud of that. And, you know, I'm proud of my courage and my bravery going back to my younger self that was terrified of stepping out into this world and, you know, doing some of the things I've done. And, um, I'm proud of the new book. It's it's again, it's a culmination of the journey so far. And I'm proud of the men's work I've done over the last two years, bringing men together to kind of uh, promote emotional awareness and and um, provide supportive communities. Obviously, male suicide has been a huge issue uh, for a long time. And to play a small role in maybe providing one solution to that is um, something I'm proud of. And you definitely should be a very important Pat Divley, Fit Mind, your book comes out 6th of January, so make sure everybody pick up a copy. You can pre-order it now. And we're just going to shift to the last question of the show, and it's one we ask everyone who comes on. It's, what does high performance mean to you, Pat? I'm going to steal Johnny Wilkinson's answer. I'm probably paraphrased because I don't know that this is exactly the words that he used, but it's about being all of me in every moment. So I guess to me, high performance is being in a flow state uh, as much as possible, you know, just being fully present with my family when I'm with my parents and my brothers and sister, being, you know, fully present with you guys when I'm on a podcast, being fully in the jiu-jitsu, just being fully there, um, spending more time in the moment and less time in my head. I think that's where high performance uh, shows up for me when I'm here uh, now, as opposed to, you know, stuck in the past or the future. Pat Dively, thanks very much for giving us your time today. Enjoy the swim. And uh, wishing you the very best over the holiday season. Yeah, stay fit, stay well. Best of luck with you, your friends, your family, all that. Thank you so much, guys. You too. Thank you. Cheers, no Pat. problem at all, Pat. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen, some wish it would happen, others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.